I'm Julian Thompson, editor of Wilkie Collins' Complete Shorter Fiction. I thought Collins a great writer when I read my first story by him. It was called Mad Monkton, and it seemed, spellbindingly, everything a Victorian ghost story could or should be. Alfred Monkton's uncle, who was a child he feared and disliked, has been killed in a duel. Thereafter, uncle's ghost, in his dying spasm of mortal agony, accompanies nephew everywhere. If any flesh and blood person is present, the ghost likes to stand alongside or immediately in front of them. The only remedy seems to be to track down Uncle Stephen's remains and give them Christian burial. They're found in a half-decayed Italian outhouse. The first impression conveyed to me, says the story's narrator, as I looked in, was of a long, recumbent object, tinged with a lightish blue colour all over, extended on trestles and bearing a certain hideous, half-formed resemblance to the human face and figure. My eyes got accustomed to the dim light streaming in through the broken roof, and I satisfied myself, judging by the great length of the body from head to foot, that I was looking at the corpse of a man. A corpse that had apparently once had a sheet spread over it, and that had lain rotting on the trestles under the open sky long enough for the linen to take the livid light blue tinge of mildew and decay which now covered it. It's as if that fractured outhouse, faintly glowing with soft blue light, were the power source for Monckton's dark obsession, fueling fears for his wedding night, for his uncle's ghost will be there, the profligate uncle superimposed on the living figure of the hero's fiancée. Think of the calm angel face, the young man says, and the tortured spectre face being always together whenever my eyes met hers. The contortion of sexuality and personal obsession in Monckton's imagination is appalling because Collins so expertly understates it. As always, Collins writes toughly about sex and without fuss for a Victorian, perhaps because his own sex life was shamelessly irregular. Two women, two establishments, and he never married either of them. So this shortish novella packs together the supernatural, a gothic situation and setting, a self-fulfilling prophecy, and a paralysing sexual hang-up. Together, they form a correlative of Monckton's tortured imagination. G.K. Chesterton noted this, complimenting Collins on a sort of involuntary mysticism which dealt wholly with the darker side of the human soul. But the construction of Collins' stories is critical too, delicate but robust, like a Gothic vault. Judged by the harsh standard of mid-Victorian realism, his yarns are possibly a touch implausible, a bit too ornate. Nevertheless, there's always the compensatory Collins charm of suspense, 
invention, fiercely applied intelligence, and a style as neat as a lawyer's summing up. He writes thrillers, and they thrill, in an age when, as T.S. Eliot puts it, the best novels were thrilling. Collins wrote a lot of fiction, his early stuff from the late 1840s and early 50s, perhaps too deliberately exotic in subject and setting, the loves of the South Sea Islanders, the fall of Rome. However, in Collins' best work, like Mad Monkton, originally written in 1852, the Gothic note is lowered to more conventional settings, convent chapels, abbey turrets, moonlit roads and madhouse cells. Collins' breakthrough novel, The Woman in White of 1860, created a whole new label for mid-Victorian Gothic, the novel of sensation. The book generated merchandise and imitators in profusion, and remains the one Collins work you must read if you read only one. Even today it's rare to hear of anyone starting it and putting it down for long. All the Mad Monkton motifs are there, magnified to suit the bulk of a Victorian three-decker. Construction is in the best Gothic fashion, with constantly switching narrative voice. There are hints, guesses, journals, diaries, footnotes, postscripts, entries in church registers, illiterate testimony signed with a cross, even a narrative contribution by a tombstone. This was the reportage format Collins inherited from Gothic writers like Mary Shelley and James Hogg, and which he passed on to Robert Louis Stevenson in his epistolary novel Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, and to Bram Stoker in Dracula. Another key Gothic motif which Collins makes his own in The Woman in White is doubling. The heroines are doubled. Faye, demented Anne Catherick, dying of consumption, who has nothing, possesses an uncanny resemblance to rosebud heiress Laura Fairley, whose vapid decency wins the whole book. Collins offers pretty Laura as half of another unsettling pairing, too, with Marion Holcomb, the closest thing this book has to a detective, whose hair is dark as midnight, whose figure and brain are sharp as a pen, but whose face, discovered to be ugly at the end of a brilliantly nasty ogling paragraph, is therefore only fit to manage the narrative, not to marry the hero. Collins, perhaps mindful of his own dormouse features and diminutive stature, is always brutally frank as to what an asset good looks are in life. The double villains of the woman in white match the twin heroines. One ugly, one beautiful. In the ugly corner, Sir Percival Glyde, whose career is a one-man effort to disgrace the British aristocracy. In the cool shadow behind him, his mentor, Count Fosco, a gracefully obese Italian, perpetual arch-master of the Rosicrucian masons of Mesopotamia, who draws live white mice from his cuffs to garnish his conversation, detests sordid particulars, and tests charm to destruction. 
In him, Collins seems to have anticipated the Bond villain. All this is a rich mix, if your notion of a Victorian novel is Trollope or George Eliot. Trollope thought Collins' rather hammy burial of the extraordinary in the matter of factual damaging and said so. I, wrote Trollope, can never lose the taste of his construction. The author seems to be warning me to remember that something happened at exactly half past two on Tuesday morning. Or that a woman disappeared from the road just 15 yards beyond the fourth milestone. But for most readers, Collins is a reassuring stage manager. He hates the reader to look stupid by discovering he or she has forgotten a clue. All plants must not only be carefully placed, but labelled. Look back to chapters 27 and 28 and you will see is a typical Collins signpost, or see the 16th chapter, warning you that you would hear of this circumstance again. With all this help, even skipping readers find it hard to get lost in a Collins novel. Collins didn't invent the literary thriller. That distinction probably goes to William Godwin and Anne Radcliffe, independently, simultaneously, in the 1790s. Nor was he the first writer in English to write about detectives and detection. That was Edgar Allan Poe with his Dupin stories in the 1840s. But Collins did win some silverware as a groundbreaker. He introduced the first police officer into British fiction, a terribly strange bed. He wrote in V.S. Pritchett's phrase, the first properly uniformed and impressive English detective story, a stolen letter. He created the first female detectives in British fiction in the short story, Anne Rodway, 1856, and the novel, The Law and the Lady, 1874. Collins' prowess in the ghost story, the detective story, the mystery story and the tale of the occult confirms that no Victorian writer, not even Poe, single-handedly did more to problematize the border between literary fiction and genre entertainment. Collins has one foot comfortably, even casually, in each camp. He wrote more upmarket sensational novels than any of his rivals, including one, Poor Miss Finch of 1872, which arguably outdoes Hardy in sustained authorial audacity. All in all, he can claim to be the most readable 19th century writer in the English language. Collins wrote more than 20 major novels, and it can be hard for a new reader to find his or her way about them, especially after, as we all do, making our debut with The Woman in White. The general rule is that the early books are less good than those of the middle period, and the later novels, which are often a little aridly didactic, less good than either. But as ever in literature, there are exceptions, and also many Collins fans come to hold exceptional views. Almost everybody puts The Woman in White first. Many put The Moonstone second, but I confess to finding the plot overcooked and some of the narrators too studied, dictatorial or twee. 
The two novels that come between The Woman in White and The Moonstone, No Name, 1862, and Armadale, 1866, are often constellated with them. No Name has a big majority following, but readers divide over Armadale, some thinking it the apotheosis of all Gothic thrillers, others just melodramatic and overcomplicated. John Sutherland points out it has no fewer than five characters called Alan Armadale. Its villain, though, is a great favourite of mine. Lydia Gwilt, a 35-year-old mid-Victorian femme fatale who seems to have stepped down from pre-Raphaelite painting. As J.I.M. Stewart has pointed out, Collins is able to portray women with a fidelity much in advance of more famous Victorian novelists. Perhaps because he himself lived, Stuart continues, outside the ring fence of Victorian convention, he was more willing to endow women with intellect, passion and strength of will than were many of his more famous contemporaries. Miss Gwild has all three qualities, tilted to the dark side. She is a career murderess, likes to see the summer insects kill themselves in the candle, and brandishes enough energy in her irrepressible hair alone to fuel a dozen conventionally pallid Victorian heroines. It is, moreover, writes Collins, of the one unpardonably remarkable shade of colour which the prejudice of the northern nations never entirely forgives. It was red. Lydia's astonishing appearance under her numerous disguises reminds us that Collins, like any good melodramatist, has an eye for the unexpected and, as a Victorian writer, a challenged or at least compromised respect for political correctness. Physical curiosities abound in his novels. There is an epileptic character whose skin turns blue, a deaf-mute heroine, statistically improbable quantities of identical twins, several blind characters, one of whom regains and loses her sight again, a rogue, rag in no name, who has one bilious brown eye, one bilious green one. Unsurprisingly, this makes him look shifty, not to mention demented miserimus dexter of the law and the lady, who resembles both a tiger and a monkey, and who was born without legs. But Colin's fascination with physical eccentricity is nothing compared to his addiction to plots built on anomalies in the legal system. He trained as a lawyer, and his progressive outlook led him to campaign for changes in the law at the same time as writing a sensational novel about them. He takes on, to name but a few, Scottish marriages, the Scottish not proven verdict, the legal status of bastards, and wrinkles in divorce law. Some readers feel a conflict of interests here between didactic and artistic purpose, especially when the anti-vivisection propaganda of Heart and Science, 1883, became more frequently discussed than the novel itself. If Collins' fiction becomes increasingly strident and eccentric after the great novels of the 1860s, some would argue that was because Collins' creative lodestar 
and close companion Charles Dickens had died in 1870. They collaborated and debated artistically for 19 years and, as T.S. Eliot puts it, understatedly, their relationship and their influence upon one another is an important subject of study. Collins is usually reckoned Dickens' most important literary friend, not least because at some point in the 1850s, shall we say, Dickens seems to have looked over Collins' shoulders at the latter's powers of construction and learned from them. Some think in his last novel, the phantasmagoric The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Dickens was trying to emulate Collins, or even exceed him. There could be no better compliment upon, or testimony to, Collins' greatness.